Welcome to the Expeditioners Podcast, where we speak with the folks who are leading the way in IT and security. I'm your host, Zach Wasserman, CTO of Fleet and co-creator of Oisbury. Now, on with the expedition. Hello and welcome to the show. We're joined today by John Reynolds, head of IT at Plio. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Zach. Awesome. So, so John, we always like to start the show with kind of what's the story of how you got into your professional career and, and how you got to where you are today. Uh, and I, I know that uh, you've got kind of an interesting story. You've been through some very interesting growth of, of companies. So would love to hear kind of how you tell your story and then dig in more to uh, some of those really juicy bits. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess right back from the beginning, I went to university. I did politics and philosophy and very quickly realized that doesn't get you a job anywhere. Um, always enjoyed computers. So I ended up in a in a small IT shop in uh, Edinburgh and really enjoyed it. Learned loads of things, um, but was, was pretty hungry for more. And then I got a call from an old high school friend uh, who was down in London working at a startup bank there called Monzo, um, who said, uh, I'm going to go and start the IT team here because there was nothing there. They were a hundred odd people. Um, do you want to come and join and help me build this? So yeah, I got a great opportunity there, headed to London um, and started building, uh, yeah, the Monzo, we called it TechOps, um, the TechOps function inside of Monzo. Um, so I joined around 160 and within a year we were getting on for a thousand or over a thousand. Um, so huge amounts of growth. Um, it was a really amazing environment to be in a ton of very smart people, uh, like intimidatingly smart people. Um, so really inspiring to always be in a room where, you know, you're the dumbest person in the room. I really enjoyed it. Um, once you get over the, the imposter syndrome, um, so yeah, had had a great time there for for three years. We kind of focused really hard on trying to build something different. Um, I just spent the last uh, two years in a in a kind of MSP, so doing smaller kind of outsourced IT work for smaller companies, um, and it was very much like pretty cookie cutter. Like it was great experience, and everyone was a little bit different, but. Functionally, what we were doing was was pretty kind of standard IT. Um, and there were always things that used to really annoy me. Things like um, submitting tickets was always awful. And people would clearly hate having to talk to us. And I, I didn't want that to happen again. I wanted it to be something where we could give people an experience that is as emotionally healing as it is technically fixing. Um, and yeah, it's it's something that we work quite hard on at Monzo in particular was um, turning like going to IT into something where you could you could actually enjoy it and come out not just with a fixed laptop, um, but hopefully with a bit of a smile on your face. Um, wow, yeah, jo guess... John, emotional healing as the experience <laughs> of going to IT is just beautiful. I've never. <laughs> I've never quite heard a philosophy like that. So I'd love to know more about kind of what did you do to uh, try to embody that vision? Um, I think one of the main things was get out of people's way. Um, I think a lot of what happens in IT um, 
can't happen um yeah shouldn't happen the way that it it does um i think one of the the biggest kind of areas there is it normally holds a lot of keys to different things um figuratively but also sometimes literally um and end up being involved in processes where we're not useful we're just pressing buttons because people tell us to press buttons so the mantra it was actually one of my later jobs that i started telling people but it was um invisible when we can be and unmissable when we should be so the two kind of pieces that we thought was really important was be invisible wherever we can be anywhere where we aren't providing value directly by being in the room but we're just doing a thing that we're told to do that should be automated it shouldn't be something that we are involved in um, and really challenging that standard philosophy of we're doing this because this is the way that we've always done it so the obvious ones, provisioning user accounts, changing accesses. Um, so something that we're rolling out right now, for example, in, in Plio is, um, is really working on our team structure and moving the source of truth for everything in terms of how our teams are created, how our departments are created. All of that is sourced from the HRIS. It's not just who you are as a person, but it's every attribute to do with how you work because we're not the arbiters of that. We don't have that information. And normally we just end up pressing a button because someone says it. Um, other kind of areas that we did that was hardware provisioning was a big one. So getting to the point where when someone starts, they get a laptop shipped. We haven't done anything. We don't want to do anything. We don't want to know that they've started. We just want their start to be as amazing as possible. And that kind of leads on to the second bit, which I think is equally as important and sometimes hard to uh, or easy to miss, which is um, unmissable when you should be, which is when someone has something going wrong, that's when you need to be there and you need to be really obvious. It shouldn't be, oh no, this thing has happened. Okay, now I need to go and file a ticket. Now I need to understand the priority for that ticket. Now I need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, if someone is asking for help, it's because they need help and the most natural thing to do is turn to your colleague or message someone that you like um, and that helps you normally and get an answer immediately. And that fundamentally, that's what we wanted to get to. So we didn't have uh, lines of support. There was no kind of escalation process that everyone would rotate on and off of frontline. Um, and there would always be someone there to answer your question. And you could be 80, 90, 100% sure that the person answering your question was the person who could deal with it, whether it was small, whether it was big, whether it was fixing some big root cause issue. Um, we didn't have escalation points because normally they introduce friction and normally end up, or at least in my experience, in my limited experience, to be honest, with, with that kind of structure was um, that it very quickly built uh, barriers between the escalation points. So your first line would end up making a workaround, building a fix for something and never telling second line or third line when the root cause should have been fixed way further up the chain or by someone with more context. Um, but I guess I've been lucky in the sense that the, the companies I've worked for have always hovered around 1,000 or 2,000, so small enough where the IT team can say, stay small enough where we can all share that context. So getting 
getting everyone on the front line and everyone comfortable answering all sorts of questions. Um, yeah, it, it really helped kind of um, build that understanding with the rest of the company that they could they could post in the Slack channel. That's all they had to do, same as they would talk to anyone else. They would post in the Slack channel and they would be confident that if it was within work hours, they would get a response inside of a couple of seconds and they would probably get it fixed inside of a couple of minutes unless it was something that was more complicated. Um, oh, that's so that's so cool. And I wonder as well if that helped for the the folks on the IT team to kind of humanize the people on the on the other end. Yeah, for sure. It, it, yeah, not having to think so much about managing the expectations and more about chatting with your friends, honestly, um, I think certainly helps. And it's, it's hard to build that atmosphere. Um, and we made lots of, we tried to make conscious choices to make sure that, that was a thing. So um, we we removed uh, about 50% of our desks. So the the person who was looking after TechOps Help, which was our help channel, and again, it was just a Slack channel. It wasn't wasn't a ticket. It wasn't, no one got to see, you know, any, anything our side. They just saw it as a Slack channel. Um, but the person who was looking after that, they would normally be sitting on a sofa or sitting in a chair. And we had... Our, our area, when you walked in, was a sofa and some chairs and a coffee table with some sweets on it. And it was a place to come and chill out and talk to us. If you wanted to come and talk to us, we could just talk. Um, and yeah, I, I think one of the things that I was most proud of was every now and then we would have people who would just be like, can I come and work here? And they would, they'd come and work for like two or three weeks sometimes. Um, just because it was it was a nice place to work, and I think it's it's easy to get lost in uh, trying to fix problems which are important to you, but aren't necessarily important to the the people that you're trying to help. Um, and sometimes the bit that's most important to them is actually just just having having fun, having a conversation, and forgetting about their slightly shitty day at work. Um, <laughs> Like, yeah, I get that, you know, you're not supposed to be a psychologist when you work in IT, but I, yeah, I think there's there's huge scope for that to kind of rehumanize what's sometimes a really like dehumanizing industry. You're not supposed to be a psychologist. It reminds me a little bit of, not sure if you've ever read it, but uh, I, I believe it's Asimov's iRobot, uh, where there's, there's the character who's like the AI psychologist tries to... <laughs> figure out what's going on with the with the computers <laughs> yeah there's definitely a whole lot of um yeah yeah it's it's a it's a different way to think about it and it's it can be a it can be a struggle as well i will say there's a huge amount of overhead that comes with that um yeah yeah and, yeah, and think of like think of that overhead i mean you were also talking about the company of 10x in size or, or something while mm -hmm. you were there were, what were the challenges in scaling that sort of philosophy while a company the company was hyper scaling like that? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's all sorts. I I would say, unsurprisingly, onboarding becomes such an essential part of the process because uh, for a lot of the company, it's it might be the first time that you see them for a long time. 
Um, and also just in terms of the volume, I remember, I think, I think our record was like 52 people in a week that we onboarded. Um, so getting to the point where we could um, not necessarily, again, it's like a lot of the onboarding process normally involves the IT team, but has we're not necessarily adding value ourselves as individuals. We're just pressing buttons and doing the operational stuff. And for us, that was that was the call out that these things should be automated. So for example, we started working with a vendor very early to say, okay, we want an API where we can order things direct from you. We don't want to have conversations. We don't want to <laughs> talk to you to buy stuff day to day. Um, you know, this is going to be transactional. We're, we're going to be pushing a large amount of volume. We don't, we don't want to, um, yeah, have to concern ourselves with every order and all of those things. So we had pre-negotiated rates. We had a, a, a RESTful API built out. Um, and, you know, we would, we would grab details from the, from the end user. Um, about 30 to 40% of, of Monzo was remote at the time. So there was a fair amount of shipping around and logistics. Um, but yeah, like day to day, the functionally, we kind of didn't need to worry too much about that. It was something that was handled for us. Um, so yeah, like I, I think the the thing that we learned quite quickly was um, partners and suppliers are really important and finding the right ones. Um, and particularly the ones, again, willing to challenge the norms um, and think again from like first principles approach. Because for most, certainly for most IT resellers, I think they're like, hold on, you don't want to talk to me. I'm the sales guy. What am I going to do if you don't talk to me? Am I still going to have a job if you don't talk to me? Um, so, yeah, some rethinking to do for a lot of them. Well, that's that's very interesting. And, and this is all leading up to the start of COVID and work going almost mm -hmm. entirely remote. So did you feel like, were you able to just kind of continue the processes that you had in place when COVID started and everyone left the office? Uh, yes, I would say we were very lucky in that sense. Um, we kept growing through the beginning of COVID, probably overgrowing. Um, but I think lots of kind of VC-backed startups were we're in that kind of similar space of like, oh, it'll it'll blow over in a couple of weeks. And you look back now and you think, wow, <laughs> what were we thinking? Um, but yeah, like day to day, um, logistically, very little change for us. And I think we we're in quite a privileged position, maybe more so than we thought um, at the time. Um, but yeah, we, you know, onboarding kept on trucking. Um, the biggest issue, I think, is 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 one that plagues every team, which is hiring um, can sometimes be a very last minute affair. And you find out, you know, and there's only so fast you can ship a laptop. Um, so yeah, there's, but yeah, I would say on the whole, um, on the COVID side, we were, we were super lucky in there. Um, yeah. And then the job after, I would say the logistics got far more challenging. When what was the difference that, that caused the additional challenge there? Um, so afterwards, I moved to Remote, which is a surprise, surprise, fully remote company. Um, and their, their kind of um, way, their core business model is that they help other companies hire all around the world. Um, so what that meant was 
we would hire all around the world. <laughs> um, and when I say all around the world, I mean like all around the world. So we had, you know, one week's notice to get a laptop to a small town in Namibia or somewhere in Azerbaijan or just some really interesting places to try and to try and sort logistics. Um, so yeah, that that became uh, kind of a whole function on its own, uh, just because of the difficulty of, yeah, how do you how do you solve that problem? Well, yeah, that that is a whole new world, <laughs> literally, I guess, uh, world to <laughs> deal with. And and then and then what does it look like today at Plio? Are you kind of returned to office, uh, more traditional setup? Are you a hybrid or how's that? Yeah, it's a um, it's a bit of a mix of both. So it's certainly hybrid in terms of we're a remote first company. So um, we believe you know people who work remotely should be first class citizens. Um, but we do also offer offices as well. Um, so I, I guess similar in terms of the way that we were running Monzo as well. Um, and yeah, there's, there's good sides and bad sides to it, but like fundamentally it means that we can be, if we build for remote, most likely it will work in the office sometimes with less efficiency. Um, but you know, in in Monzo, for example, we we considered and for a while we did ship things like someone was remote, even if they were coming to the office. The fact that the address for 50 laptops would be the same doesn't really matter to us. You know, it's the same process happening over and over again. Um, but yeah, here we're, we're kind of aiming for something similar. Um, yeah, uh, it, we were on a lot more countries. So in terms of geographic coverage, we're somewhere between remote and Monzo, which was, uh, there was a US side, but most of it was UK. So here we have, we basically cover most of Europe and then we have the UK as well. So a fair few countries um, to think about, but not too stupid. Nice. And were there, were there strategies that you use at Monzo or remote that you find like don't work as well at at Plio because you have unique circumstances there. I, I, I mean, I'm really hearing a lot of narrative of like, you really got to run through this whole array of challenges and come up with a lot of really great sounding solutions. And so, uh, yeah, I'm curious to think about, you know, what, what were the challenges stepping into this newer job yeah. at Plio? I think the largest was probably personal, which is, um, this is the first time I've not started from the ground. So when I joined Monzo, 160 people, fresh IT team, it was me and my old friend. When I joined Remote, first IT employee, 95 people. I joined Plio and we're a thousand people. There's an existing team, there's structure, there's impetus, there's, there's all sorts um, to kind of reconsider um, and an existing culture to to either rebuild or rethink or or even to to fit in with so i think the the biggest um challenge for me has has been navigating how how different that is to building from scratch um both positive and negative but yeah definitely it's been a big challenge yeah that's that is really interesting to think about and i i 
really appreciate, you know, kind of the the level of consideration that you have for human factors here across, you know, thinking about the people on the other side of the laptops, thinking about the culture of the of the teams that you're joining. I think that, that, that that's really cool. And I think I think that there's generally a trend across IT and as well as security, the security leaders and, and practitioners that we talk to are thinking a lot about the the people on the other side of, of the experience. So it's, yeah. it's really cool to see that trend. I think security in particular, it's, it, it feels like it's so essential to get buy-in. Um, like you can build the most perfect system of, I don't know, like data loss protection in the world. And then some dude's just going to come with his phone, take a photo of it and send it to someone on WhatsApp. Like, if you're stopping people from doing their job or if you're making their job hard, I don't know, like fundamentally, I think people are good and most people just want to do a great, a great job at their work. Um, and that's despite whatever you put up in front of them. So unless they're seeing the value or you can explain, then um, it's, it's never going to go well. <laughs> and I still have, I still have fights with, the security team about this because I think it's it's quite easy to to hide behind obscurity and say they don't need to know that these things are installed or that this is going to happen on their machine. Um, but as soon as problems crop up, you know you're you're hiding away the solution or at least the understanding from a group of like fundamentally adults. Um, and it's amazing how many times you can sit in a room and say like well we should tell them because they're adults and everyone looks at you like what <laughs> you're like yeah like we're all grown-ups right like we can handle the truth you know um yeah i think it's always quite telling <laughs> yes i i am with you i completely agree people are fundamentally good they want to do a good job and they want to understand why things are the way that they are and um so it's awesome to it's awesome to hear it from folks like you who are out there kind of setting policy building culture and and i think that uh security teams are hearing it and, and learning it as as well so you're not the you're sure. not the only one and i hope that you find <laughs> those conversations becoming easier with the with the security team as Absolutely. well so so uh john and thinking about how things are kind of evolving you know we've seen over the last five years we've seen we've gone from you know partial remote to like full remote and back a bit of whiplash there from the pandemic for sure um but w w how do you anticipate that the it landscape or, or even just your job will change over these next say three to five years um I think the two things that will probably come hand in hand is going to be increased automation and an understanding that that increases the governance requirements. Um, I think it's something that's that's kind of very much on the edge right now and people don't necessarily consider it until they're talking about big things. Um, but, you know, there's, there's lots of wonderful things that you can do with automation. You know, we, for example, as, as we talked about, like we automated the shipping of laptops. So if someone started, great, um, they get a laptop shipped to them. But that laptop costs £1,500. And if your automation 
is bad, or if you've left an API endpoint open on the web somewhere and someone can spam it, and you've just spent one and a half million on laptops because you never bothered to to kind of think through the the governance side of it, um, it, it becomes a problem. And I, yeah, personally, I think the the future for for IT as a whole is fundamentally we're normally a conduit. Like we are a, a translation layer between different aspects of a business and the business itself. So we take people data, we take your job, and we take the role that you're supposed to take. And we should turn that into a set of permissions that allow you to do your job and do your job easily and allow you to have the hardware that you need to do your job. We are an enabling function in that sense. And likewise, we take security requirements and we turn them into a safe environment for you to be able to do that job. Um, and ideally, that conduit should be something with some solidity. Um, so a, a big project that we we did at Remote and that we'll be doing at Plio is is talking about Terraform and where we can where we can move towards a a Git-based approach for the vast majority of what we're doing. So whether that's, um, you know, and it's it's something that I genuinely admire about Fleet, for example, is is the approach towards GitOps and saying, okay, like these are these are scary buttons that you can press in this admin panel. <laughs> like ideally, there should be a clear um, approval process for it. It should be something that's enshrined in documentation by default. Like it should be self-documenting. This is not the kind of stuff where ideally, you know, it's just you know you could accidentally press the wrong button. Um, you know, we we had we've or I've seen instances where people have nearly accidentally wiped all fifteen hundred machines in a fleet because um, it's it's easy to do and again there's 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 very little in terms of that accountability so personally I I see that being a big trend is um, I think you'll see more and more Terraform providers popping up. For different bits and pieces, I think you'll see more Git workflows and a, a more nuanced understanding of what change control really looks like. Um, and I think you'll you'll see that pervade outside of just IT. Um, headcount planning, people data as well is another place where, as soon as you get that pipeline to a point where people data immediately reflects elsewhere in the business, suddenly everyone realizes how easy it is to change people data. Um, and, you know, I've had these conversations before of like, well, we can't turn this automation on because then someone could just change something here and it will change all over there and they will change their permissions. And I'm like, cool, that's, that's the objective. <laughs> like what we're now talking about is a problem with an, another platform that I absolutely agree. Like, like. It's another place where governance, I would say, in general, is kind of slightly lacking. Um, and there's all these, all these kind of, I guess, development and production paradigms that I think still need to shift over. The other big one is like A/B testing. It's something that we don't really talk about on the employee level until you're at extremely large scale. But it's relatively straightforward to implement. But if you go and talk to Launch Darkly and you're like, "Hey, I want to," I want to hook this up to Okta and I want to have A-B testing for different app configurations that we have. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Um, 
So I, I'm looking forward to the point where those those kind of that separation between what's a product and what's an internal product uh, start breaking down, and we can start taking advantage of all the the lovely things that they have in the product world. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and I, I mean the way I see this is the rise of client platform engineering and on the security yeah. side, security engineers and, and detection and response engineers, that kind of thing. Um, and for me as someone who, you know, my background is, it goes, is in software engineering. It's like, well, it's so cool how we have computers who can automate all of the things that, you know, we used to click buttons or, or shift levers or that kind of thing for. And the more that everyone can kind of upskill uh, towards being able to use code and use even no code kind of automations to uh, to simplify and expedite things. I th I think it it just helps us all get more leverage and get more done and uh, and and professionalizes these roles, which is really cool. For sure. What do you think happens in the next three years, five years? That's a <clears throat> that's a great question. Wow, turning it around on me. So I <laughs> I, I think. I think that, it, you know, as I said, I think we'll definitely see more of the engineering type roles pop up. I think uh, it, that means that for for those of us who are, you know, the more traditional IT and security kind of folks, like we need to be we need to be learning how to do automation. We need to be uh, building code and 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 hopefully we can look at that as more of an opportunity than uh, than a threat because I think that you know the folks who do that will find themselves in in uh, higher paying positions. I think that the job security will continue to be there, and then uh, I I think it's I also see more of the of the kind of stuff that you're mentioning, like thinking more about the humans that are on the other end of of the experiences that we're creating. Uh, thinking about culture in IT and security, like these are these are not cultureless things because the interactions with humans really matter quite a bit. So I think that we're going to see we're going to see more of all of those kind of things. And um, and uh, the, the last thing they'll add is I think that we're going to see more people using Chromebooks. Uh, I think that Chrome OS is That's really. I love okay. That. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, I've seen a lot more of that in this last year than I've seen prior in enterprises. Um, and people are, are seeing that, you know, the attack surface on Chromebooks is so much smaller. The configuration surface is so much smaller. They're so commodity. Um, you can repurpose old laptops that won't run like you know, Windows 11, you can put Chrome OS Flex on them. So I, I think that, that Chromebooks are in an intersect, in interesting intersection of factors around sort of cost savings, simplification, and for roles where they can get the job done, which I think is a lot of roles in organizations these days, I think we'll see more of that. So take that as my more speculative bet and, uh, and we'll see what that. happens. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, we've we've rolled out Chromebooks at uh, at Monzo in particular. Actually, we we had a, a significant fleet of Chromebooks. I think the biggest hurdle they have is is reputation, um, and I'm not going to say that's the only reason Apple is now a big player in the workplace. But I think it genuinely does make a huge difference. Um, is your perception 
uh, as an end user of whatever you're going to use. And that's going to change hiring prospects. It's going to change retention prospects. Um, I don't think the direct impact there will probably be on IT, but I think the pressure will be on IT to say, okay, well, maybe someone doesn't want this. Um, like fundamentally, I think it's a fantastic platform, particularly for IT teams, because you've got everything there in a console. Um, you know, the well, they were pretty slow on zero touch provisioning, but apart from that, <laughs> it's it's a pretty great place to be. But I I I, I see that as the biggest challenge. Um, so I love your bet. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting point, John, and uh, I have to say I'm not surprised to hear you bringing it back to the people on the other end of, of the screen. <laughs> I think uh, I think that yeah, I mean, people people like Apple products because they, they feel premium and. And if people feel valued at work, then they're more productive and their retention is better. So that is a really interesting factor uh, to consider when looking at this. And I think that it, it, it will be interesting to, to see what kind of you know, executive management level conversations happen around these kind of factors and how that influences the, the adoption. Yeah, for sure. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been really interesting conversation today. Uh, a bit wide ranging, uh, <laughs> but really, I love the I love the focus again around around the people and the culture and all of that. And I think that our our listeners will really appreciate that. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, if folks want to uh, catch you out there in the world, are you going to be at any conferences this year? Are you online on social media, anywhere that folks can find you? Or Got me on LinkedIn. That's all. I'm not really a conference goer. Sorry. All right. All right. Cool. <laughs> so find him, uh, find him, John Reynolds, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, John, thank you so much. And I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Likewise. Thank you, Zach.